All right. Well, I know the, the next speaker we have coming up for Missions Month uh, needs no introduction from a lot of you. But uh, for those of y'all visiting with us or new to Fellowship Bible, Jim Wilson is here with us uh, this morning. He is our uh, missionary to Costa Rica. He and his wife, Melanie, serve in Latin America and in uh, uh, that, that country, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and all around. He's going to share with you about that. Uh, and we support them. They're one of our missionaries we support. But he has a deeper connection with our church in that he was the first pastor here at Fellowship Bible Church over 30 years ago. God used him to plant this church here. And uh, so for those of y'all who saw my message on Facebook, the special announcement, the cat's out of the bag, he is our special guest this evening. And um, I've been told that uh, I think there's going to be a photo booth, right? A gym photo booth if you want <laughs> Christmas cards, uh, New Year's cards. And if you press him hard enough, I've been told that he will sign a picture uh, of him, you know, for you. So this is mine. You're going to sign this for me, okay? But uh, so bring your, bring your pictures with you this evening, and Jim will sign that, okay? But it's a joy to have uh, Jim Wilson here. He's going to come up and uh, share a little bit about the work that's going on in Latin America and also uh, bring a message from God's Word. So, Jim. Wow, thanks, Graham. Um, for those of you who couldn't see clearly that picture, it was actually a picture of Sean Connery. Is that right? <laughs> Is that right? And true story. Now, I, I didn't know, actually, that this, um, that this story had made it uh, from here, but when I was pastoring in Huntsville, Alabama, I was mistaken for Sean Connery once. Um, yeah, that, was that an uh of surprise, or...? <laughs> No, I, I, I haven't forgotten it, and, and believe me, I milked that for all it was worth uh, for more than a decade. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to sign a picture of Sean Connery. I mean, I, I think it's, it's obvious, uh, the, the resemblance. And, and I am so happy. I, I had no idea that the story, the legend, had made it from Alabama to Texas. Wow. I am so I, Jesus, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's uh, showing and telling a little bit about, uh, a little about my life and, um, and the glorious things that God has done in my life to confuse me with Sean Connery. Um, in show and tell, uh, what we usually do is bring something unique, something that we're uh, particularly proud of, uh, and the point of the game, the point of show and tell, is to learn something about the one who's showing and telling. So I'm going to briefly uh, play the game with you and uh, show and tell. I guess I need to turn this on. So I'm going to briefly show and tell. Uh, this is our family uh, right now. Um, we are the proud patriarchs of uh, this family. So Melanie and I will celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary uh, next month. That's hard to believe I'm even 40 years old, much less have been married for 40 years. Uh, next to us are Mark and Candace, if you can believe it. Candace is 31 years old now, our, our youngest. Uh, and uh, that's Wilson uh, that Mark is holding, and that's Anna that Candace is holding. 
they are six and four years old, and they live in Columbus, Mississippi, where Mark is a C-130 pilot uh, for the Air Force. So they're kind of a moving target all over the place. And then there's Hope and uh, JD, um, and they live in Huntsville, Alabama, and this is the newest addition to our family. His name is Sebastian. Uh, Hope and JD unfortunately lost a couple of babies and they can't have their own, so they entered into a long-term or long-term process to adopt, and uh, Sebastian was added to our family uh, in January, actually December, January, and um, he's just been a joy. And I was sharing with someone, uh, it's great to have him, but probably the greatest thing has been to see the joy in my daughter as she has fulfilled being a mother. So that's our family. So that's a little show and tell. I'm a proud father and pa. That's what the grandkids call me. Uh, show and tell a little bit about something we share in common. Graham mentioned that uh, God has called us to Latin America. So I lead a ministry called EBOC, the Bible Institutes of uh, Latin America. Uh, this is basically where we are throughout Latin America there. We, uh, in every one of those red points uh, indicates uh, where we have a pastoral training center, where we are training Latin American pastors and church leaders. Over the course of a year, we probably train between 2,200 and 2,500 uh, pastors and church leaders throughout um, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. So that's kind of where we are. This is you guys, the, the church uh, here from Fellowship. Uh, there's Scott Sands sitting on the front row there, and I think this is Ron Luce, and there's Brent, and, uh, and this is a group of about, uh, I would say, 90 to 110 pastors and church leaders uh, in Potosi, Nicaragua, which is probably the hottest place on the planet. Um, and for anyone that's been there, they would they would testify to that. So that's, that's a little bit about uh, us, our family, and, and, and the ministry that God's called us to. Um, right now, there are 11 people who, from this church who are being hosted by my wife to work with uh, her ministry in, in, uh, in San Jose. So that's, that's kind of cool. We, we passed kind of like this. As I was coming here, there was a team of 11 people going to where, where we work and minister. So that's show and tell from my perspective. But if you were God, what would you bring to show and tell? Something unique. Something no one else could bring to show and tell. Something impressive. Something that makes you, the shower and the teller, look good. Something that helps us learn something about the shower and teller. If you were God, what would you bring to show and tell? Well, first, I, th I think God would bring creation to show and tell. Because creation shows and tells something about him. Now, there's one thing for sure. No one else is going to bring a universe to show and tell. Because no one else can make one. But God did. Now, what is it that creation shows and tells about God? I think creation shows and tells God's glory and God's power. At least that's what the Bible tells us. In Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, we read this. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
They declare, they, they tell. The skies proclaim, they tell the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They show, they tell, they show what? His glory, his knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Creation shows and tells God's glory and God's power. Romans tells us the same thing. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, Romans is telling us that the heavens declare and show the glory of God, the existence of God, in such a clear and evident way that no one can say, well, you never showed me any evidence of your existence. God made the heavens and the earth, and he could bring that to show and tell and say, look what I've done. He made the heavens. Now it takes some awesome understanding and supreme power to make that. He made the mountains and the meadows. And as you look at that and countless other scenes of mountains and meadows across this planet, I mean, you have to be amazed at what an incredible artist God is. Look what he can do with shapes and colors. God made the birds. And he's decked them out in such incredibly beautiful and magnificent colors, and he gives them such beautiful songs to sing. God did that. God made that. He made the lion strong and majestic, powerful, king of the jungle. But God, the creator king, made the lion. I think God would bring show and tell, God would bring creation to show and tell because creation shows and tells God's power and God's glory. But what else might God bring to show and tell? Well, I think God would bring Israel to show and tell. Because Israel also shows and tells something about God. After God made the heavens and the earth, God made something else. He made a nation. He chose one old man living in a pagan land. And out of that one old man and one old woman, God built a nation. He made a promise to this old man, and he kept his promise to that old man. And God brought into existence the nation of Israel. Now, why were they chosen? Grace. And what has preserved them? Faithfulness. I think Israel shows and tells God's grace and God's faithfulness. I mean, look what we read here in Deuteronomy. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God. 
keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. I mean, I think this passage is abundantly clear that God did not choose Israel because of anything great or good in Israel. He chose Israel because he is a God of grace and love. And he has preserved the nation of Israel through his faithfulness, not because of anything good that they've done, not because of their faithfulness to him, because they have not been faithful to him. Melanie and I had the privilege and the opportunity to go to Israel and, and, and visit that land uh, in, in April of this year, and it was an incredible, incredible journey. But one of the things that I came away with is this nation, against all incredible odds, has been preserved by God. They still exist, folks. And when you know their history, that is nothing short of amazing that God chose them in his grace and God has preserved them in his faithfulness. Creation shows and tells God's glory and God's power. And Israel shows and tells God's grace and God's faithfulness. I think God would bring creation and God would bring Israel to show and tell. But here's my question for us this morning. What if God put us on display for show and tell? Do you think he would take that risk? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, As members of the body of Christ, we are the most wonderful phenomenon in the universe, the most amazing thing that God has ever done. <laughs> you want to ponder that for a moment? I showed you pictures of the heavens. I showed you pictures of mountains and meadows. I showed you pictures of birds. I showed you what God did in an, incre an incredibly amazing way to bring about the nation of Israel through an old man and an old woman and to preserve them. And yet this man says that as members of the body of Christ, we are the most wonderful phenomenon in the universe, the most amazing thing that God has ever done. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that statement is an overstatement. He's just, he's just gone too far. He has explained this in terms that are a little extreme. He's, he's over the top to say that we're the most amazing thing. But I want to argue that he's not extreme. I want to argue that it's what the Bible says. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, I want to show you what God says about the church. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is God doing through the church? He's showing off. To whom? To the heavenly realms through the church. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immediately more than all that we could ask or imagine, 
according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now I want you to notice that Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 says something more than simply that God's wisdom is made known through the church. What's the text say? It says that his manifold wisdom is put on display to heavenly rulers and authorities. God's wisdom. Have you ever noticed that God's wisdom kind of makes you scratch your head? And you go, what is up with that? God's wisdom works like this. God tells us in his wisdom that the way up is down. Right? That if you want to keep what you have, you've got to give it away. That's God's wisdom. What's man's wisdom? If you want to get more, keep it. God says if you want to get more, give it away. God's wisdom says to find your life, you must lose it. And to lose your life means you find it. God's wisdom says that unbridled freedom leads to slavery. God's wisdom says that slavery to Jesus leads to freedom. It's kind of inside-out sounding, isn't it? Weakness brings strength. The first will be last. The last will be first. Man's cleverness is foolishness. God's foolishness is wisdom. That's God's wisdom. The last time I was here, you don't remember, I remember. The last time I was here, I preached the message from 1 Corinthians, and I demonstrated the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And when you follow man's wisdom, you get a church like Corinth that is so jacked up, it's just hard to describe. But when you follow God's wisdom, you have peace and you have harmony and there's integrity in relationships and he gets glory. Man's wisdom makes me look good. God's wisdom makes him look good. Which one are you pursuing? God in his wisdom has done something incredible in the church. Ephesians 3 tells us that God's purpose for the church was that his manifold wisdom, his multicolored, multifaceted wisdom might be shown off, might be displayed in heavenly realms through the church. Get your mind around that. God shows off with the church to the angels. Hey, angels, look what I've done. When the angels consider creation, I mean, I think they see wisdom, don't you? How God makes everything work in harmony with itself. They worship God because of creation. And they've got to marvel at Israel how God chose Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and not Ishmael and Jacob and not Esau and how he conquered Pharaoh and how they conquered the land. I mean, they have to marvel at what God did through Israel. But Ephesians is telling us that God's wisdom hasn't even been seen yet in its fullness until God forms the church. This is going to get real practical, by the way. It may seem ethereal right now. 
And you may be thinking, well, gosh, he's, I don't know if he would use our church for show and tell. I hope you want him to. God's wisdom is put on full display as we see God solve two irreconcilable problems in the church. I mean, we, we see his wisdom. God's wisdom is revealed in the miracle of salvation, first of all. One of the problems with our salvation, one of the issues in our salvation, is the enormous gap between man's sinful condition and God's holy character. How do you bridge that gap? You know, I, I think we don't fully appreciate the distance between sin and holiness. And, and, and we have a tendency to believe that, well, you know, we're just, we're just a little bad. No, we are hopelessly without hope. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that in the first three verses. I mean, look what it says. As for you, you were, what? Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, there, there are at least two words in there, two descriptions that are pretty profound, dead and objects of wrath. That was our condition before Christ. That's our condition. What is God's character? Well, God is a God of justice, is he not? Is God a God of justice? Is he just? Is he righteous? But what does justice demand? Justice demands that he punish sin, right? But verse 4 tells us that God loves us and he wants to forgive us. So God's in kind of a dilemma here. His justice demands that he forgives sin, but his love says, I want to... No, his justice demands that he punish sin, judge sin. But his love says, I want to forgive sin. So what does he do? He's kind of caught on the horns of a dilemma. Make you scratch your head and go, how do you figure that one out? Justice says judgment... Love says forgiveness. Well, the answer is Jesus, obviously. When Jesus died on the cross, he assumed the punishment, the judgment that our sin deserved so that God's love is now released and he can forgive us. Glory to God for his wisdom. I couldn't have figured that out. But God in his wisdom solved the love justice problem. <laughs> And it's, it's just amazing. The angels must have puzzled over that for centuries. But God, from forever, had it all figured out. But God solves another irreconcilable problem, and it's found in the mystery of the church. Remember that Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 tells us that God's purpose is that through the church, he would show and tell his manifold wisdom in heavenly places to angelic rulers and authorities. God's wisdom is seen in how he solves the Jew-Gentile problem. Two 
hopelessly irreconcilable peoples. The Jews, with all of their pride and arrogance at being the treasured possession, they've got the law and the prophets. We've got Moses and Abraham. And the Gentiles, with all of their smug arrogance, the Greeks who said, who needs Moses and Abraham? We've got Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. We don't need that mess. So you've got ugly Jewish pride that snubs them, and you've got arrogant philosophical pride that ignores them. But God's desire from the beginning of time and from the beginning of things in Genesis has always been that all people would be his people. How do you bridge this gap? How do you bring together these impossibly divided people? I mean, they hated each other. Absolutely hated each other. Especially the Jews. You remember Jonah the Jew? Who didn't want to go and preach in Nineveh? Why? Because they didn't have good beaches? No, because the Ninevites weren't Jews. And he did not want them to be saved. Read the book. You remember in the New Testament? Peter, the Jewish preacher, who didn't want to go to the house of Cornelius to preach to him and bring him the good news? Why? Because he wasn't a Jew. Incredible. God had to visit Peter in a dream to convince him, go, buddy. I mean, this division between the Jews and the Gentiles is deep. It's deeper than Democrat-Republican. I mean, one of the saddest things for me to watch from afar, and thank God personally that I have to watch this from afar, that I'm not here in the midst of the country. You guys have let go to... But one of the things that, that, that is just clear is that, folks, we have an incredibly polarized country right now. But what I want to tell you is that the polarization between the Jews and the Gentiles was deeper and more vast and more rancid than the conservatives and the progressives. It's gone on for thousands of years. And yet God wanted to bring these two people together into one how does he do that how in the world do you do that how do you bring two peoples together obviously you know the answer to the question what's the answer Jesus and his cross it was through the cross of Jesus Christ that the two have become one. Look at what chapter 2 verses 14 to 18 say for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself 
one new man out of the two. What are the two? Jew and Gentile. And to bring them together in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Second time in this passage, the word hostility is used. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, Jews, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, folks, that's incredible. That both Jew and Gentile stand before God guilty, equal ground. There's nothing the Gentiles can be proud of. There's nothing the Jews can be proud of, but the blood of Jesus cleanses Jew sin and Gentile sin. And by the way, he's cleansed your Gentile sin, right? And he has bonded you in. Wisdom and glory. Scripture over and over tells us that God's plan has always included all people from all nations. Now, if it were up to me, I'd look at the Jews and the Gentiles and I'd send Jesus and say, okay, his blood cleanses Jew sin, Gentile sin. Now let's have a Jew church and a Gentile church. Because these folks ain't getting along. That's what I'd do. That's not what God did. What did God do? He said, you both came in through Jesus you hate each other, and now I'm putting you together. And as you come together, Jew and Gentile, in one body, it's going to show my manifold wisdom to heavenly realms that look what I can do through redemption and through Jesus Christ. I can form this irreconcilable two peoples into one, and they can live in harmony. And that shows my wisdom in my glory. The church shows and tells God's wisdom and God's glory. What God does in forming the church shows and tells. It reflects on him. And folks, what we do and how we behave shows and tells. It reflects on him. Now, if God sent his son, I'm going to go two or three minutes over, Graham. If God sent his son to die in order to create unity, when there has been deep, deep estrangement and animosity, should we not do everything within our power to maintain the spirit of unity through the bond of peace within our local assemblies? Should we not? Maybe that's why the very next thing that's said in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 and chapter 4 and verse 1 is this, as a prisoner for the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. How? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Don't just kind of trivially, you know, just kind of go at it a little bit. Make every effort 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. God established unity. We don't have to establish it. We just got to keep it. And Paul says, that's the way you'll walk worthy. How do we walk worthy? I mean, it's the whole rest of Ephesians. We walk in unity as a first principle in a world of division. Is there not enough division in the world? Can we not find harmony in the church? Should we not work at that? Walk in holiness in a world of depravity. Walk in love in a world of selfishness. Walk in light in a world of darkness. Be controlled by the Spirit in a world dominated by the flesh. Wear God's armor to overcome our evil adversary. That's how we walk worthy. That's how we show off. That's how we make God look good. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. The church is the medium through which God's wisdom becomes manifest. The church is a kind of prism placed in the path of the light to break up the whiteness into colors of the spectrum. What a conception of the Christian church. The question that comes to us is this. Are we manifesting this wisdom of God? Is it being seen in us? Are we reflectors in our little way of this bright shining of the eternal wisdom? Are you somewhere in the spectrum? Is the light being reflected through you? God forgive us if we're failing. The rulers and authorities are watching fellowship. What are you showing and telling them? Jacksonville in Cherokee County is watching. What are you showing and telling? 